Well, imagine that one of your friends is a really good pilot and invites you to fly in his lush private jet to New York City for the weekend with some friends. It's who you know, right? Uh, you agree to go and uh, you board the jet and the cabin has luxury written all over it. Uh, you, you get up in there and he has laid out this amazing spread of food like never before and he shows you the cockpit and, and all the gadgetry and you think that's pretty cool and, and then you and your friends, you, uh, you find your leather seats to enjoy the party in the sky and uh, your pilot friend, he heads to the cockpit. And he closes the door, and after a a little bit of humor over the intercom, he takes you to 40,000 feet. Mid-flight, he comes walking back into the cabin to join the fun. Now, because of technology and because of of modern aeronautics, uh, no one panics, but everyone is thinking the same thing. I hope this has autopilot. So you kind of casually say to your friend, hey, man. Uh, what are you doing back here? And uh, he said, well, I didn't want to miss all the fun. I thought I'd come back and hang out for a while. And, and uh, after your courteous laugh, you ever give one of those? <laughs> um, uh, you follow up by saying, I'm, I'm sure this thing has a pretty good autopilot system, right? And um, he shakes his head. So all the fun stops at this point. And your next question is blunt, dude, who's flying the plane? And at this moment, if your pilot friend says, relax, man, I'm in, I'm in charge. But I must say, I'm not in control. Are you comforted or are you terrified? Who cares if he's in charge? Who's flying the plane You'd like to actually get to New York City and enjoy Times Square and the rest of your life. You want to know who is flying the plane. Is God in control? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but if he's God, he probably should be in control. Is God actually sovereign over everything? If so, that raises some questions for us, right? Or maybe there are some things that happen that aren't God's will. Maybe God isn't in control of everything. Maybe there is something out there that is more in control than God, which can prevent the will of God. If God is not sovereign and in control, who is? If something can derail God's will, then is he really omnipotent? Is he in charge? Can he actually help us? The alternative to a sovereign God is an impotent God, and that's no God at all. Either all things happen within God's sovereign control, or at least some things happen outside of his control, which would strip God of all of his divine attributes. I'm sure that this sermon will stir some questions about the sovereignty of God. It may unnerve you, Or it may deepen your faith and joy. Tonight I hope to to show you three simple things from a solemn passage of Scripture. Number one, the dreadfulness of unbelief. Number two, the sovereignty of God. And number three, the glory of the cross. 
And I want you to see the horror in unbelief. I want you to see how glorious the sovereignty of God really is. And I want you to be comforted, to be assured, and to be overjoyed at what the cross really accomplished for you. God is sovereign and in control of Jesus' death. Verse 36b says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Their apostasy was set and Christ's public ministry was essentially complete. Jesus hid. The events of his crucifixion were in motion. Jesus said the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified, which meant that God's appointed time had come. Jesus was aware of the approaching cross, and yet he trusted in God's sovereign plan and control over his life. God had destined the most dreadful sin of history, the crucifixion of his son. Everything was going as planned. Peter proclaimed in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned and purposed the cross And through it, redemption. Yet Peter also told the Jews in Acts 2 that they crucified Jesus by the hands of lawless men. They were responsible. Through the Bible, we see two consistent threads. Number one, God's sovereignty. And number two, man's responsibility. They coexist. Neither contradicts nor negates the other. God is not only sovereign and in control over the details of the cross, God is sovereign over and in control of history, all of history. Look at verse 38, it says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now that's interesting. Before we head into verse 37, there's something that you should understand. Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before John 12. John quoted Isaiah 53.1 because it was fulfilled in the first century. Fulfilled prophecy confirms the sovereignty of God over everything. God planned that Isaiah 53.1 would be fulfilled in John 12. So let's head back for a moment into Isaiah and try to unpack that just briefly. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. Isn't that great? Yahweh is salvation, and that's the theme of his prophecy. Isaiah saw a vision. He saw, what's interesting here, the word of God. He saw the word of God. Isaiah even said he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah saw God. God's people were unfaithful. God called them a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. So God appointed, very graciously, Isaiah to speak divine truth to Israel. And God said, they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. Isaiah 52, uh, God spoke of salvation through a Messiah. And this is what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. 
Isaiah spoke of Jesus being lifted up, exalted, beaten, beyond human semblance, exalted in his suffering. In verse 15, Isaiah mentioned many nations seeing that which had not been told them and understanding that which they had not heard. The nations would see and understand the glory of God in the crucified Messiah. Then Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In verse 2 and following, Isaiah described how Israel failed to see and to look at the Messiah. They failed to desire him. They despised and rejected him, esteemed him stricken and smitten and afflicted by God and killed and buried him. The Messiah, Isaiah 53, 1, reveals that Israel chose to reject the word of God and eventually the Messiah of God. Israel made a choice. Yet, Isaiah 53 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God willed it. And Isaiah said that God had put him to grief. It was the will of God for Israel to choose to reject and kill the Messiah. When Isaiah wrote, who has believed what he has heard from us? The answer is, no one. No one has believed. Israel would reject Jesus. The arm of the Lord is God's great power, God's great strength, his salvation. And it pointed forward to the great powerful and miraculous miracles of Jesus, these signs. And Israel, even in the face of those signs, still did not believe. John quoted Isaiah 53.1 because when the Jews refused to believe, Isaiah 53.1 was fulfilled. God is sovereign over and in control of history. God not only knew it, He ordained it. Ephesians 1.11 confirms this. It says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, history included. Hebrews 6.17 talks about the unchangeable character of God's purpose. Isaiah 46 talks about God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. God said in Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. History is guided by God's sovereign hand. If God is in charge, but not in control, who is in control? And how can we be sure that God can be trusted if He is not in control? Bill Johnson is the pastor of a big church in Redding, California. He's a sought-after international speaker, uh, a successful author. Bill Johnson has said some very disturbing things about God. And I want you to hear a quote from one of his sermons and ask yourself, then who is sovereign and in control? This is what Johnson preached. Not everything that comes at us is God's will. One of our biggest areas of confusion in the church is concerning the sovereignty of God. We know that God is all-powerful. We know that He is in charge of everything. But with that, we make a mistake in thinking He is in control of everything. There's a difference 
from being in charge and being in control. If you think he is in control of everything, then you have to believe that Hitler was his will. That he was just going to work it for his purposes. Why would God raise something up to be his will that he empowers you to pray against? End of quote. The implications of that are devastating. Devastating. If God is not in control, and Hitler was not God's will, and God was not able to work evil for his purposes, then God would not be all-powerful. God would be impotent to stop crisis and tragedy. We couldn't rely on God to help us at all, and there would be something out there, out there, more powerful than God, accomplishing its will and its purposes. Johnson admits, even says that God is all-powerful, but then he teaches that God has no power to stop certain things from happening. Johnson proceeded to say that God comes at our invitation and has released the dominion, get this, to us. And he said, that's why prayer is so essential. Johnson continued, many of the great saints in history believed that God's hands were so-called handcuffed, but released through prayer. Johnson believes that God delegates authority to us, works in partnership with us, and that we actually give God permission to come and act. He's implying that we are in control. That our prayers are sovereign and authoritative on earth. If God can only act in the world if we give Him permission, then who is in control? The Bible is clear. God absolutely uses our prayers to accomplish His purposes. But we are not in control. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that shall stand. One more sad, sad line from Johnson. Listen to this. So if you believe that God is in control of everything, then you have to look at crisis and tragedy and say, well, he allowed it for a purpose. No, he didn't allow it for a purpose. He put us in a realm where our authority, our will, has an effect on what happens around us. End of quote. Before he was murdered on a Roman cross, Jesus prayed very honestly, not my will, but yours be done. The worst tragedy ever, the crucifixion of God's son was not only allowed by God, it was God's purpose. And God's beautiful son didn't regard his own will, only his father's. Jesus plainly said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. As God had said, Jesus foresaw the tragedy of the cross and he trusted in God's will and purpose for him. That's what his life was all about. The entire Bible unfolds God's redemptive plan and purpose throughout history. The cross is absolutely absurd without the sovereignty and control of of God. Do you have questions about this? Yes. Is it hard to understand? Yes. Does the Bible teach it? Yes. 
Like Job, God has said to us, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's safe to say, my friends, that there are some things we don't understand. But God does. And maybe that's why he's in control and we're not. John wrote in verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Something happened in John 12 specifically because God said it would. Because God is sovereign and in control of history. So now that we've established that point, now we can get to verse 37. God is sovereign over and in control of unbelief. Look at verse 37 again. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Notice three important things here. Number one, Jesus had done so many signs. So many. At what point does evidence become conclusive? Where you just have to say, okay. Okay, I get it. Take Michael, uh, Michael Jordan, for example. Six championships, 10 scoring titles, five MVPs, the highest career point average in NBA history, 30.12 points for career. And he has lots more interesting facts, if you want to look it up online. At what point can we just say Michael Jordan was the best scorer in the history of the NBA? And maybe we can even go so far as to say he was the best player ever. Jesus changed water into wine. He healed sick people. He healed lepers. He cast out demons. He had supernatural knowledge of where fish were. In fact, he even grabbed a fish and took a coin out of its mouth to pay its taxes. That's impressive. Are you impressed by that? I'm impressed by that. I could use a few fish with some coins. He healed disabilities. He raised people from the dead. He calmed storms. He supernaturally generated food and fed thousands. He withered a fig tree by rebuking it with words. His track record speaks for itself. Number two, Jesus performed signs before them. Before them means they saw it. They saw it with their own eyes. Tens of thousands of people witnessed his miracles Jesus went public with his power. His signs authenticated his Messiahship. Interestingly enough, nobody denied his miracles. They didn't try to argue him away because they couldn't. It was absolutely conclusive. Number three, with the overwhelming and indisputable evidence in front of them, they still rejected Jesus. Verse 37 says, they still did not believe in him. They refused to believe. Even conclusive evidence didn't change their heart. Seeing more didn't change their heart. I mean, at what point do we have to say in our culture today, I don't think evidence is the issue. I think the heart is the issue. We have enough evidence After seeing his power firsthand, how could they still not believe? And so many people today want to see some supernatural miracle in order to confirm that God exists, but why would that work when you look way back in the first century and they saw tons of them and they didn't believe? 
Verses 37 and 38 contain the answer as to why. First, notice human responsibility in verse 37. They didn't believe. They chose to reject Jesus. No one can point to God and wag the finger and say, you did this. You made me reject you. God can never be blamed for our sin. We are responsible for the conscious choices we make absolutely every day. And Romans 3 teaches that none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God, and no one does good. The nature of man is not good. The will of man is not good. And I am confused at why the church continues to give so much credit to the will of man. I don't understand that. If God doesn't intervene, we prefer by our own will never to believe. We choose unbelief. And John gives another reason. Remember that God is sovereign over and in control of history. And look closely at verses 37 and 38. John wrote, They still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Do you understand that? Persistent unbelief was part of God's sovereign plan and purpose. To make absolutely sure that we understand what he's saying, John adds verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. The word therefore is important. It connects verse 39 with verses 37 and 38. They were unable to believe because God judicious, judicially hardened and blinded them because of their unbelief. Now let's slow down here a little bit. John used the Greek word dunamai. This is an important word, dunamai, which refers to capacity or ability. Dunamai, you might be able to hear dynamite inside of that, power, ability. So dunamai is having the power to do or experience something. The crowd had no power or ability to believe. This is the condition of the human heart after the fall. This is important to hear. The hardness of their heart prevented them from believing. Faith never generates from a hard and rebellious heart. You ever think about that? Why would it? It's rebellious. It's hardened. It can't believe. Why would it want to? Faith is always a gift of God's sovereign grace. If, you, if you're a note taker, take these passages down later on, maybe sometime this week. Pay close attention to them. Study them out a little bit and test what I'm saying. Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. Ephesians 2, 8. Abbreviate the names. Acts 13, 48. Acts 16, 14. Acts 18, 27. Galatians 5.22 and Philippians 1.29. I'll fly through them real quick. Deuteronomy 29.2-4, Ephesians 2.8, Acts 13.48, Acts 16.14, Acts 18.27, Galatians 5.22 and Philippians 1.21. They all teach that faith is a gift from God. John went further and quoted Isaiah 6, which was also fulfilled in John 12. John said, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. God blinded them. 
God hardened them. It was God's judicial hardening as a consequence of their unbelief. God doesn't harden people who desire Him. He hardens people who reject Him. God allowed them to have their own way, to do what they wanted. They chose to reject God, and God chose to harden them. All within the sovereign plan of God. Now, I want you to listen to a paragraph from a German theologian, Franz Delitzsch, from the late 19th century. It's been a while since this guy has been alive. Delitzsch's words are profound, and they're very helpful in explaining this principle of judicial hardening of God. Here is what Franz Delitzsch says. There is a self-hardening in evil, which renders a man thoroughly incorrigible, and which regarded as the fruit of his moral behavior, is no less a judicial punishment inflicted by God than self-induced guilt on the part of man. The two are bound up in one another, inasmuch as sin from its very nature bears its own punishment, which consists in the wrath of God excited by sin. For just as in all the good that men do, the active principle is the love of God, so in all the harm that they do, the active, active principle is the wrath of God. This is a key line. An evil act in itself is the result of self-determination proceeding from a man's own will. But evil, regarded as the mischief in which evil acting quickly issues, is the result of the inherent wrath of God which is the obverse of his inherent love. And when a man hardens himself in evil, it is the inward working of God's peremptory wrath. Matthew Henry wrote, God sometimes in a way of righteous judgment gives men up to blindness of mind and strong delusions because they would not receive the truth in love of it. Even the word of God oftentimes proves a means of hardening sinners. Please understand, no one rejects Jesus who did not also want and will to reject him. God's judicial hardening responds to man's sin of unbelief, and God is right and God is good to harden as judgment. Verse 41 says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw his glory and spoke of them. Isaiah saw the radiance of God. Isaiah saw the excellence, the majesty, and the preeminence of God. And Isaiah spoke of Christ, the Messiah. And I believe that Isaiah saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Son of God. He saw the glory of the suffering servant. He saw the unbelief and the apostasy of Israel, and he saw the glory of the cross. Isaiah wrote the word of God and saw in them their certain fulfillment in Christ. Folks, unbelief is shocking. It's shocking, and it's terrifying. It's serious. Our problem is not evidence, but our will. Our will is the problem. The human will is not morally neutral. It's depraved. It's sinful. It's rebellious. People chose to reject Jesus, and God chose to harden them. Now, 
Perhaps after, seeing, after hearing this, you take a deep breath and you're like, I don't see the hope in this. This is not helpful, Pastor. Well, first of all, I guess I'd ask you, is it true? Do you see it in the text? But, unbelief and its devastating impact on the world is obviously not an easy topic. It happened to be the text. I wanted to keep on in John and this was it. So God determined this, not, not me. Every single crisis, think about this, every single crisis and tragedy or sorrow that you have experienced is caused by unbelief at some level, either yours or someone else's. But unbelief opens the door to see the magnificence of the sovereign grace of God at work through the cross. Please listen closely to this next line. I worked really hard on this. It took me a while for this one sentence. Christina's like, you should put it up or write it down somewhere because it's long. And she's right. So I hope you don't get lost in this, but I, I worked hard on this sentence. All right, here we go. Though God's sovereignty and control over everything includes evil and unbelief, which creates for us a most complex paradox we must equally consider that the same sovereignty and control of God has also accomplished redemption through the cross, regeneration through the Holy Spirit, and salvation by grace through faith. God is sovereign over and in control of faith. The only hope we have is that God has actually accomplished salvation for us through the crucifixion of His Son and by His sovereign grace has prevailed over sin and unbelief and made us alive together with Christ through faith. John wrote these words so that we would see the solemnity and stubbornness and flat-out insanity of unbelief alongside of the glory of Jesus and his cross so that we would not ignore the cross in obstinate unbelief but would believe in Jesus Christ and obtain life, life and joy in him. As tough as God's word, word may be sometimes, it, the words are inviting you are beckoning you, are calling you to see and to understand and to turn and believe and be healed. With great compassion and love, Jesus told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe. 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 Don't be condemned. Don't perish. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Verses 42 and 43 say, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Did they have saving faith? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Back in John 2, people believed, but Jesus knew that their belief wasn't genuine saving faith. Go ahead and read it sometime, John 2. Same thing in John 8.30, Jesus even called the believers sons of the devil. So I don't know 
if verses 42 and 43 are describing genuine saving faith, we'd almost like it to be. What I do know is that something about their belief was amiss. They believed in Jesus only so far. They failed to publicly announce their belief because they were scared of the Pharisees that they would excommunicate them from the synagogue. They loved the approval of men more than they loved the approval of God. They wanted to be accepted by their peers, by men. Confessing Jesus wasn't worth losing their precious synagogue and status. So what did they do? They kept quiet. They kept quiet. They kept their, their faith, maybe intellectual, maybe saving, pushed down. Under wraps, don't let anybody know. Jesus told some religious authorities back in John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How great a barrier to faith is the lust for the approval of men. Jesus made it clear. Everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. God is sovereign. God is in control. And this is really, 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 really good. His sovereignty and divine control enables him to give the beautiful gift of saving faith and ensure 100% its effect. Paul said that God made us alive together with Christ, that we were saved by grace, and that's sovereign grace. If God is sovereign over and in control of all things, the death of Jesus, history, unbelief, faith, then God is sovereign over and in control of your life. You can trust Him If you love him, then all things will absolutely work together for good, for your good. He's in control. You can rest in him knowing absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. He is in control. You can hope in him because his sovereign spirit is power. He is in control. You can fear him because he can destroy both soul and body in hell. He is in control. You can love him because he first loved you. He is in control. You can worship him because he is holy and he reigns. He is in control. You can cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is in control. And you can rejoice in him for he has clothed you with the garments of salvation and covered you with the robe of righteousness. He is in control. No doubt, unbelief is dreadful. It's haunting. But God is sovereign and the cross is glorious. And if you humble yourself at the foot of of the cross and believe in Christ with all of your heart, then the sovereign grace of God will unlock for you love incomprehensible and mercy that forgives all your sin. How precious the sovereignty and control of God are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a massive word from John. Whoa. But God, in that, I wonder who here tonight 
hears this word from John and is broken and softened and their heart is yearning to believe and to follow because this message of the cross and the sovereignty of God which brought it about is so huge and epic that God maybe tonight someone is completely humbled before this and recognizing that you are sovereign and you are in control and that maybe tonight you are calling someone to repent of their sin and to believe in Jesus Christ and to come to the cross and find inexpressible and unparalleled joy and love from you, the Father. Perhaps someone tonight is going to be made a child of God And I wonder, like earlier in John, if there are some people here that hear this and they're hardened, and that maybe this truth is causing them to turn and not follow you anymore. It happened earlier in John. Something very similar to what John just said here caused people not to walk with Jesus anymore. And I wonder, the same message that brings incredible hope and peace and joy and comfort and assurance for some who believe and who want God to be sovereign and they see it in Scripture and they trust you and they run after you and when something bad happens, they know that it is for your purpose and that you would work it for their good. And so the same message can just soften someone and and break them down in humility and have them love you more. And that same message can drive those further from you. Same message. So God, I pray that you will just rain down your grace tonight, that your Holy Spirit will help people to believe and to trust, and that we can truly exalt and rejoice in the sovereignty and control of you, the Almighty God. As we sing these last two songs, God, I pray that our hearts would just glory in the cross, that we would be so stunned by what we see in the cross. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.